And, and we're going to talk about a term that we don't usually use. It's kind of a fancy theological word that you engage in this all the time, but you've never called it this. No one uses this word. It's called theodicy. It's a word that means the attempt to explain what God is doing in the world, especially when bad things happen. You're trying to explain what God's doing. And we do this all the time. Uh, and really, when you look at it and you think there's a word for that, this is, it's called you're being an idiot to think that you can explain what God is doing. And yet, God does give us the word to understand him a little bit, a theodicy. The most famous theodicy anywhere is the book of Job, where Job goes trying to figure out what is going on right now in my world, right? There's bad things happening to me, and I don't know why, and he attempts to explain it. And so tonight, uh, this passage we're going to look at, we're going to learn some things about God that might be a little disconcerting, but then overall is pretty amazing. Some things about our God that uh, are narratively explained. They're explained in different parts of Scripture, but it's narratively brought out in this story. He's revealing some things about himself and about us and about sin and how God works. So, as, as was read a moment ago, we start in verse 7. But you know before this, uh, David had sinned in chapter 11 with Bathsheba killing Uriah and others and then covering it up for a while. And then Nathan comes to him with this story. And, uh, and, and it's a story about David, but he, he says these are, these are characters by another name. And so David doesn't realize he's indicting himself when he indicts this person. But you know this, Nathan said to David, you are the man in this story that you've just that you just critiqued and called guilty. And here's what he starts saying. I anointed you king over Israel. This sounds a lot like Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And he starts lining all the things God has done. Forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desires with good things, renews your youth like the eagles. All these amazing things God does for us, right? Well, God starts doing that with David. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you your master's position and all your wives, right? I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if, if that wasn't enough for you, look at that, I would have given you much more. You know what he's saying? If that wasn't enough women for you, David, I'd have given you more. Seriously, David's like, God's like, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil? You know what evil is? There's a lot of forms of evil. We think evil as Hitler. We think evil as someone who murders or assaults a person. We think of evil as the lowest of the low. You know what God considers evil? Someone who's not grateful for what God has done for them. When you take his blessings and you don't give a moment's thought of giving gra gratitude and thanksgiving to God, he says, I consider that despising the word of the Lord, I consider that evil. It's gross. And I'm like, because I didn't send you a thank you note? Come on, right? That's right. This sounds much like a parent with a kid. 
I give a roof over your house and I put food on the table and I do, and you know, you know, and you just disrespect and you spit in my face. That's how God feels about this. What he's saying to us is every good thing you have came from God. That's what he's saying. Every good thing you have. How many in here have a good spouse? You better raise your hand. Listen, I'm doing you a favor here. And if you don't go along with this, it's your own stupid fault. Okay, your consequences are yours. You got a good wife? Good, good. How many of you have good kids? Yeah. Now, I'm sure you had something to do with it, but you know who else had something to do with it? God's being gracious to you. How many of you have a good job? God's working in your life. Listen, look, I've just said three things, and three hand, your hands go up three times. God has been good to you. The New Testament says this, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And that's what God's saying here. I'm itemizing all the things I've done for you. Sun, rain, daily bread. I mean, we look at this scripture, lays it out for us. God has been good to all of us, everyone in here. And I think that's the reason you came up the hill on a Sunday night when a lot of people choose not to, because you just feel this gratitude. Great, you should, right? And there's something he's saying under his breath as he does this. Why? Why does God bless you with good things? If you were to ask that of David, David, why has God been so good? Or, or what should you do, I should say? Why, why does God choose to be good to you? And here it is. God expects you to thank him and serve him in response. He wants you to recognize him as the giver and to give him your obedience. That's what it is. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I think I've got it on screen. Do you presume on the richness, riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God? Not knowing, in other words, you're assuming, you, you are presuming on it, right? You are taking advantage. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead. You know why God's kind? You know why God is good to people? So that they'll understand where the goodness comes from and give him their praise and their obedience. That's why God's good. What happens when God continues being good, but people aren't responsive, people aren't grateful, people aren't obedient? What happens when we're not? God says he feels despised, verse 9. You've despised the word of the Lord, and you've done what's evil in his sight. Doesn't it seem like then the pro most prosperous people in the world should also be the most faithful to God. Doesn't that make sense? God prospers you and gives you all that you have. You should be the most faithful. But God has discovered over history that humanity doesn't work like that. The more you bless us, the more we take it for granted. The more we just kind of go, well, maybe... Well, this is how he puts it. When you get in the promised land, when you get into that land that you did nothing to get, and in fact, you start eating the fruit of it you didn't even plant, don't get into that land and say, well, because we work so hard, because we're so good. And that's exactly what they did. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. God should be able to bless us into faithfulness, but you know what? He can't. So what does God do? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do easily in his sight. 
Instead of being thankful to me for everything you've got, you struck down Uriah the Hittite because he was in the way of something you wanted and you knew you couldn't ask me because it was against my law and so you took it into your own hands. You weren't grateful and in fact, you became entitled. With a sword, you've taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him with a sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. God considers disobedience to his will evil and he will punish it. He will punish it. There's another way he says this, and you know this from Acts 17 when Paul gives this sermon. He describes who God is, and he's, just, he's talking to people who didn't go to Bible class all their life. These are pagans. How do you talk about God and spiritual things with pagans who don't have a Bible, don't know the truth, don't go to Bible class, never have? What do you do? You start with creation theology. You know how you got here? God who made the world... They understand this. There's a world that we can see that we all are tangibly a part of. God made the world, everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. He, when he says Lord of heaven and earth, it means he still runs it. He made it, and he still runs it, okay? He does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human needs as though he needed anything since he himself gives mankind life and breath and everything. The breath you just took is a gift. Okay, everybody breathe in. Breathe out. That was a gift. That was a present given to you by our Creator. And the fact that you take hundreds of those a day doesn't take away from this fact. It's a gift. And tomorrow morning when you open your eyes and you take another one, tomorrow the day that's given you is a gift. And we know who gave it. It's God. That's what he's saying. So, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He determined where you'd live. Why are you born in Arkansas, if you were born in Arkansas or in the United States or around here? Why were you born here instead of some village in Africa that doesn't have running water? Has nothing to do with you. Take all your brain power and your intellect and all the wonderful skills you have and put you in some aboriginal village in Australia and you're just another person trying to survive in a desolate place. And the reason you're here is because that's where God put you. Uh, determine the allotted periods, the boundaries of their doing. Listen, every, every day of your life, there's so many of these blessings you're counting on and you're living off of, whether you recognize it or not, that they should seek God. God put it this way so that they would go, why is it this way? Why is it working this way? How does this work out like this? And you're supposed to go, there must be a God. Let's go seek him. And God said, and I'm not far from either one of any one of you. I'm keeping myself just out of the shadows, just into the shadows. You can't see me. Seals goes looking for me, and I'll help you. I'll let you find me. Come on, I'm going to come on. He's like the Easter egg guy, right? Hey, there's an egg over here. I'm over here. I'm over here. I'm over here. Come look and come look. And if you look at all, if you go seeking at all from the blessings you have and you wonder, why am I so blessed? God says, if you want to find the blesser, he's just a little behind the blessing. And he wants you to come looking for him. And he wants you to find him and have a relationship. And when you don't, you're despising him. You're not really being faithful to the blessing itself. You despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord then, punishment comes then, y'all. When we don't, 
God punishes disobedience. This, I began to wonder, is God prescribing this? I hope this makes sense. Is God prescribing this, or is he just describing what will happen? Does that make sense? Is God entering the story, making bad things happen as punishment, or is he just letting the bad things that would naturally happen flow? Which is he doing? And God can do both. God's known for both. But in this story, as we read it, listen to the fact that God actually enters the story. Thus says the Lord, behold, verse 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. God's going to make sure this happens. This is not descriptive. This is prescriptive. God is going to make it happen. Now, I will take your wives before your eyes. Give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, his son, of the son. For you did this secretly. I will do this thing in front of everybody before the son. S-U-N. I'm going to make sure you suffer, David, for despising me. A God who punishes. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now... He's forgiven. We'll, we'll pass over that for just a second. We're going to save that to the end. That's the good news of the story, right? You will be forgiven. But verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you as a result of your, your sins shall die. And Nathan went to the house. God punishes disobedience. This is a hard one, and this gets really ugly because of the next line. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. He became sick. David starts praying and fasting. David's appealing to God in every way that he can. He already knows the announcement's been made, the child will die, but that doesn't stop David from appealing to God with every fiber of his being to change his mind about it. The servants are alarmed about how David is responding to this. He's not eating, he's just, he's just being despondent all day long, right? And he, this goes like for a long time, and then finally the child dies. And they're afraid to tell him because, man, if it was that bad, he's going to kill himself when this is over. But, but, but David knows, he discerns from their actions, this baby has died. And he gets up and he cleans himself off and he starts to eat and he gets, he gets back to living. And that's the famous line that we'll hear at funerals every once in a while. I can't go to him. I mean, he can't come to me. I can't save him. But I can go to him one day. That's a beautiful line about children. But it's a disturbing thing. God reaches into the, the life of this child and takes his life because of what David did. Does that disturb anybody? I want to keep God at arm's length. I'd love to. Sort of like Job's kids were killed. We know, but, but God let Satan, the Satan do his thing. So God wasn't really directly involved. He just allowed it, yada, yada, yada. I don't see a difference personally. But in this story, God's on the hook. God is on the hook. He takes the life of an innocent 
child to punish a guilty man. That is so hard to grasp. Did he do that with the firstborn of Egypt? He did. There are a few other cases like this in Scripture, kind of rare, but this one just directly comes out and says it. And it's really hard to hear this. It's just strange, but it, it's just the way that is right there. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to update this because we're talking about the nature of God here. Does God punish like this today? Be careful how you answer. Does God punish like this today? And here's my first answer wants to be like this. No. Because his punishment on sin was Jesus on the cross. This is God's total view of and treatment of and punishment of all sin of all time. And he puts it on Jesus. And the reason that is so ugly and so nasty and it has to be so public and so visible and it has to be so clear that God's doing this, that God's back behind this, is because God has taken out all of punishment for sin on Jesus on this cross. And therefore, he does not have to punish you that way. There's a lot of truth to this one. But I have to pause because for us to say that God can't punish today like this or that he would not might be saying a little too much. But can I tell you this? If God was doing this to punish someone, you would not know it. Is the pandemic being used to punish people? Let me say it this way. Could the pandemic be God punishing people? Could be. Can a preacher get up in front of people and say, it's the punishment of God for the evil of our nation? No. You don't have a verse. We don't have a verse could be but you'll really never know it because we don't have an interpretation about this particular thing from scripture but there is something we can say and that is this that all hardship that's upon people is discipline it is an opportunity that God presents you whether he caused it or whether he allowed it it's presented to you. Now, are you going to handle this with the maturity of a Christian? Are you going to learn through this? Are you going to approach this, as James says, with great joy because you know you're going to grow through this? Can you do that? Can you as Christians, instead of letting it divide the whole brotherhood over this issue and that issue, can we show the world what it looks like when loving people accept the discomfort of our world in this time to show what the love of God looks like and the patience with people? What would Jesus do if he was going through a pandemic? That's what the church should look like. So use our experiences, even the tragic ones, to lean into God, trust him more, and become more like him. God does discipline those he loves. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is growth and maturing. And I believe we can say one more thing about this, that there are, sin, there are consequences to sins that goes beyond the spiritual ones. There are We will sin and God will forgive us, but listen, there are still consequences we have to bear. 
there's still all sorts of sides to this thing that you have to suffer through. It unleashes some things that we never intended, and maybe we didn't even see them as involved. But you know what? That sin unleashes this stuff. And while God forgives us through Christ, he doesn't erase those things. Those still have to take their toll on us. I don't like any of that, but I... Does God still punish today? He disciplines for sure. And yet there's one thing a little more... There's one thing even more shocking than this, and it's on the positive side. God puts away sin when it's confessed. Puts it away. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You won't die. He's put it away. And this is the most scandalous forgiveness in all of Scripture. It's going to make you uncomfortable, especially those of you who are traditional view of repentance has to always be this way. There's some shocking stuff. God goes over the top, right? So I use this story to kind of train myself to be very careful when you decide what repentance looks like. David cheated with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, shouldn't have had her, but gets to keep her, and God blesses it. The very person who symbolizes the sin, the rejection of what God's given him, and he goes and he forces his way into another woman's life, and God lets him keep the woman. Preposterous. As part of punishment, in my eyes, in part of punishment, he should never be able to be with her again and see her again. This needs to be over. No, you can't do that. Oh, yeah. God says, go ahead. Not only that, but the chapter ends with them having another child. And God says, go ahead, have another child. I'm going to love that child. And of all your children, it's going to be the next king. How ludicrous is God's over-the-top grace, forgiveness? I haven't caught up to this 2 Samuel 12 picture of God's grace yet, and I'm in the New Testament era after the cross. How can it be? Because his, complete is so utter, his forgiveness is so utterly, absolutely complete, over the top. How far from the east is the west? How far is that? It's really, really far. And God forgives lavishly and blesses them. This flamboyant grace, this forgiveness goes beyond our ability to ponder this. It's just um, scandalous to us. I just can't believe God let him keep the woman. And I can't believe I'm still standing with the sins I've committed. That's how gracious he is. I think what all of these messages say is that God is so totally serious about us. He wants us 
to reach the fullest potential he created us with. He designed us in his own pattern. He's the prototype. And he created us for this highest position, right? To govern the creation. And Romans 8 says, he hasn't given up on that yet. Psalms 8 says he hasn't given up on that yet. We blew it in the garden, but he hasn't given up on that yet. He's creating a new heaven and a new earth, and he's going to say, let's fulfill this after all. Let's prepare you. And right now, you're in various levels of preparation. This is not just, hey, we got a reserved spot in heaven by and by, yay. This is, let's start cooperating with God and letting him shape us into his image and be ready to take over the new creation as God intends us to do, Romans chapter 8. That's what he wants. And you are in the process of doing that right now. We're not just waiting for heaven. We're building the kingdom here, right here for us to be exactly what God intended us to be. Don't tell a young person, you need to be baptized so you can go to heaven when you die. You need to be baptized so that you can be all that you can be right now. Right now. And you can be in the works of it. You can be in the process of it. And God can be shaping you through his Holy Spirit. And you can start, well, being with creation the way God intended us to be, Genesis chapter 1. He never gave up on his purpose. So this comes with great expectation because he made you capable of great things. And when you sin at serious business, yes. But the moment you turn back, it's like it never happened at all. It's like you're a sweet little angel to God. And I know the truth. So do you. But he treats you that way. And when you sin and go amiss and you come back, God just immediately wipes that away and says, okay, let's start right here and let's do this again. It's just like that. He views you as brand new again. It's, un, it's crazy unbelievable how God is with us. The reason he punishes is because he's serious about your holiness. And the reason he forgives is he's serious about your holiness. And he's serious about you. We serve a God who's serious about us. And I pray we'll be serious about him and live our lives that way. If you need to respond this evening, whatever it is, just come and say what your need is and we'll do what we can to do the thing that God would have us do in his presence. Let's do that as we stand and as we sing.